Pope Innocent III was the kind of pope who appeared to have his hands in everything from royal politics to religious wars. In this episode, join Christine and Josh, that's me, for an adventure as we look at some of the most interesting aspects of this medieval pope's life. Hey everyone, Christine here. With Josh. We've been meaning to work together on an episode for quite some time, and we decided over the summer that Pope Innocent III was the kind of guy who deserved an episode. But please know that we know we have not covered every single thing this dude did. He did a lot, and we chose our favorite parts to talk about. With this episode, you'll still learn a lot, and I think by the end of it, you'll have a good idea of why. If you're studying the early 1200s in Europe, it's almost impossible to avoid the name of this pontiff. And also, I just always liked saying the word pontiff, so I had to say it. Plus, don't forget, dear footnoters, that if you would like this episode or any of our episodes with captions, you can find them at footnotinghistory.com or youtube.com forward slash footnotinghistory. If you want to help us out financially, but can't or don't want to join our Patreon or use Ko-Fi, listening to our episodes through YouTube is a good way to do it because we do earn from folks watching the channel. And you know we appreciate you all listening to us, no matter where or how you do it. And now for our main event. So I guess we should set the stage a little bit. I can do that with an intro to the man of the hour, Pope Innocent III. Or should we call him Lotario? We should. The man who became Pope Innocent III was born and pardon my speaking this way because I'm Italian, but I can't always pronounce Italian names correctly. Tario de Conti di Segni. Let's go with that. Sounds good to me. As you probably guessed, he was Italian. He rose up through the ranks of the Catholic Church fairly quickly and was elected to the role of Pope in 1198 when he was only in his late 30s. So it's like the equivalent of electing a Pope who is my age right now which is something we haven't seen recently. The late Crusades historian Jonathan Riley Smith noted that outside of Pope Urban II, who is perhaps most known for kicking off the Crusades, Innocent III, quote, contributed more to the movement than any other individual. The Crusades were far from his only concern, but maybe we should talk about them first since they're a bit of a big ticket item. Well, actually, maybe we should talk about the papal monarchy first. Fair point. Definitely do that. When you took a medieval history class back in the day, the general narrative of the papacy kind of goes like this. Fall of Rome to the 11th century reform and investiture crisis, Pope's not powerful. From the 11th century reform and investiture crisis to when the papacy moved to Avignon, France, Pope powerful. Once the papacy moved to Avignon until forever, Pope not powerful. What this waxing and waning of papal power is really all about is wrapped up in one of the ultimate medieval questions. Who controls Christendom? The kings or the papacy? That, after all, is what the investiture controversy was kind of all about. Who could invest, quote-unquote, bishops with their authority? The kings or the pope? So the former master narrative, and beware the master narrative, <laughs> was that during the so-called papal monarchy, the Pope was the ultimate authority of Christendom. 
These old-fashioned historians pointed to things like the result of the investiture controversy as proof of the papacy's ascendancy. So old-fashioned historians claim that this was when the papacy started to become super powerful and the ultimate authority in Christendom. Even more than that, these old-fashioned historians pointed to things like the Crusades, which you're about to talk about, <laughs> the formation of the Inquisition, the limiting of monastic movements, and the continued conflict between the papacy and the German emperors. The papacy really didn't like the German emperors. It was a mutual hate. Suffice it to say that these historians, these old-fashioned dudes, saw Innocent III as the ultimate expression of the so-called papal monarchy. Which, if you buy into it, you'd be hard-pressed to find a better example. But I think you know what's coming. So help me, Josh, if you turn this episode into the weediest weeds that have ever weeded. I mean, I warned you. But no, I'll not get weedier than a dispensary. A scholar named Colin Morris wrote a book called The Papal Monarchy back in the 1990s. And while he's kind of all for this traditional concept of the papal monarchy, he rightly calls it a paradox. Because St. Augustine's two-swords theory of society played out in medieval society, it's kind of like this. There's a separation between temporal, what we would call secular, and spiritual power. Sometimes one bled into the other. Ultimately, Morris argues that the papal monarchy can only be understood as applying to spiritual authority. But because of this bleed between spiritual and temporal authority, it put a lot of strain on this two-swords theory of medieval society. Honestly, I think this is a tough argument to support because there were times that temporal leaders did usurp spiritual authority and tell the Pope to pound sand. And vice versa, too. Please see Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II and Innocent IV. Can I talk about crusading now? I'd like to trim back these weeds. Please do. Okay, so... When I asked Josh how he wanted to split this episode up, he assigned me the Fourth Crusade. I was fine with this because I never pass up the opportunity to talk about something that is a complete mess. She's being quite polite. I, I am. I used a word with a profanity embedded in it when I was originally commenting to him about what the very short summary of the Fourth Crusade was. When Innocent III became Pope, crusading had already very much been a thing for, you know, about a century or more, much like those before him, when Innocent III pitched the idea for what became the Fourth Crusade, it was intended to be a reclaiming of Jerusalem for Christianity from the Muslim leaders who were currently holding it. Here's a rundown of what actually occurred, though. So, Innocent III calls for a crusade in the late 1190s, and the usual leaders, like kings, are either too busy or too worn out to deal with this. It takes several years, but eventually some big noble names signed up for the cause, like Boniface of Montferrat, who became one of the Crusades on the ground leaders, Baldwin of Flanders, Simon de Montfort, who will be important later in Josh's Crusade section, and a host of others. When the plan of attack was being decided, something had to be taken into consideration. The Christians and Muslims in the region had entered into a truce that was set to continue to be in effect for several years. So attacking Jerusalem would have been bad. For sure. It ends up being decided that the Crusade would get Jerusalem back the long way. The Crusaders would go to Venice, 
Then from Venice, they'd make their way to Muslim-held Alexandria in Egypt, and they'd attack there. Taking and holding Alexandria, which was a very important economic port and city, would, in theory, ultimately lead to the Crusaders weakening everyone they wanted to weaken, and hopefully to then eventually taking Jerusalem. So if you're thinking that this is convoluted, you are absolutely right. It is. So folks in Venice had been hired to prepare this massive fleet to help move the expected thousands of crusaders to Alexandria. Only even though the crusade's leaders and Innocent III did their best, they didn't have all the money they owed to the Venetians. The Doge of Venice, that's Venice's leader, is Enrico Dandolo, and he says, sure, I'll accept postponing payments, but you guys have to help me. I need control of a city called Zara, or Zadar, so attack there first. However, this is a very bad idea. Zara was a Christian place, under the control of a Christian leader. Some crusaders say, heck no. Others refuse to take part in the crusade until after this part is over. Innocent III hears about it and he shouts, no attacking Christians! The Venetians and the participating crusaders go through with their plan and they take the city. Christian on Christian crusading crime. Yikes. But they still want to get to Alexandria, right? I mean, I know what happens, but I have to ask. Yeah, right? I mean, only yet again, that doesn't happen. While the crusader Venetian team are hanging out in Zara, they get asked for some help. Over in Constantinople, the capital of the Byzantine Empire, which is now Istanbul, Turkey, and you should definitely Google the weird song about the name change. Anyway, they might be giants for the win. Yes, right. Political upheaval had been the recent order of the day. The man who will become Alexios IV says, look, if you help me reclaim the throne of my overthrown father, I'll pay you and help with army provisions. And also, by the way, I'll make the Greek Orthodox Church submit to the Catholic one. Some of the Crusaders, like Simon de Montfort, are like, no, no, I'm good. And they left. The others went along with it, even though Innocent III had told them not to attack any more Christian cities. At one point, he even tossed excommunications in there, the ultimate stamp of rejection and censure that the Pope can give. Didn't stop him, though. It didn't. And honestly, not everyone even knew they were excommunicated. That is, you know, X'd out of the church. I have vivid memories of being in Crusades class in grad school and Dr. Paul shouting, the Crusaders didn't know they were excommunicated because the leaders didn't tell them. The claim for why the leaders didn't tell them that they were excommunicated is that telling them might break up the crusade, which they didn't want. Anyway, so they go to Constantinople. Alexios gets the throne, not because the attack was a huge success, so much as because the current ruler in Constantinople fled. Things don't go so well from here again. Alexios doesn't fulfill his monetary promises. Pretty much everyone, and the Crusaders included, they develop a hatred for each other. Things get ugly. Everyone pretty much in the area, Crusaders and non, can't stand Alexios. He gets overthrown and replaced. Then the Crusader squad eventually decides, you know, forget all this. We're just going to take over the place. So in 1204, Constantinople is sacked we get the sack of Constantinople. The Crusaders attack, take over, pillage, and destroy. It goes above and beyond anything that you could have imagined, and these sort of things are never pretty on a good day. But this becomes iconically graphically horrible. 
It ends with Baldwin of Flanders on the throne of what historians call the Latin Empire, which lasts a few decades. But the whole Fourth Crusade was just a parade of detours and disasters. Ultimately, it's safe to say that this whole enterprise was a big L for Innocent III. <laughs> mm -hmm. It was. If I were Innocent III, I'd have vowed myself off Crusades forever. But he wasn't easily deterred. Right. But if you don't mind, I'd like to save the Albigensian Crusade for after I talk about Lateran IV. I think it'll make more sense. Okay, fine. I'll take us to the fight with King John instead. So, we've said that Innocent III is kind of known for his fierce protection of the power of his office, and he had no problem dealing with the secular world. You should know that. Even if he didn't always like the secular royal rulers, or maybe especially then. Definitely, especially then. And my favorite ruler to talk about who Innocent III didn't like is King John of England. And yes, I do hear you shouting that most people still don't like King John. And I get it, but I find him super interesting. And of course, these two just could not get along. Definitely not, which is strange because it's not like the popes and kings of England ever had problems before. You can't see me, but I'm winking about this. Anyway. Here's what went down and how Innocent III pulled rank. John knew that there was no escaping dealing with the church, and he, pretty typically for a ruler, wanted to make sure that he had a lot of say in who held major church positions in his realm. So, in 1205, a man named Hubert Walter died. Hubert had been Archbishop of Canterbury, which means that he held the most senior church position in England. He had to be replaced and John wanted someone he picked to take the spot. Innocent III, though, didn't want someone chosen who would be in the king's pocket. The Pope said hard pass to John getting his pick, and as a result, John's nominee found himself selected and rejected while Innocent III pushed for his own candidate, Stephen Langdon. Langdon was born in England, but for many years had been living in France and teaching theology. He was a learned man, Extensive sermons and biblical commentaries of his still exist. He'd also known Innocent III a long time. The two had studied in Paris at the same time before Innocent III became, well, Innocent III. John, though, wasn't interested in some guy with more ties to France and the Pope than to him coming in to be the most powerful cleric in England. Things went to hell quickly. Innocent III didn't care what John thought, and consecrated Stephen as Archbishop anyway in 1207. John retaliated by punishing the Canterbury monks who had been convinced by Innocent III to elect Stephen. Innocent III responded by proclaiming an interdict. An interdict means that Catholics who lived in the area couldn't have any of their sacraments, and this includes holy burial, which could make a lot of people upset when their family members passed away during this time. Also, no path to salvation? Not great. Mm-mm, not at all. John didn't like this, so he took more clerical property, and entertaining to me, but not to them, I read that he arrested the mistresses of priests and clerks. They could go free for a fee. That's one way to stick it to people. Negotiations between the Pope and King got nowhere, and so Stephen remained on the continent. Eventually, Innocent III excommunicated John. John didn't care. In fact, confiscating all those estates had actually made him richer, even if he was a spiritual outcast. 
It wasn't until a few years later, when John was in a boatload of political trouble, that he finally caved. He had to ask Innocent III to make amends, partly in order to get his support against his own unhappy barons. By playing the long game, Innocent III won. Not only did John have to agree to accept Stephen as archbishop, but he also had to make amends with other exiled religious and give back taken estates. Plus, he recognized the Pope as his overlord, which is a bit humbling. All the religious censures were lifted, and Stephen was able to properly be archbishop. As a bit of a coda, Langton would later have a role in creating the infamous Magna Carta, though exactly how much he did has still been debated. The ultimate point is this. Innocent III won. Innocent definitely gets the dub here. He does. Now he's even. No doubt about this at all that Innocent III won. And I know that you have another confrontation of sorts to discuss. Ladder and four. Confrontation may not be the word that I would choose, but I don't think it's a bad choice by any means. And what I mean by that is whatever confrontation there was at Ladder and Four, it was a fairly one-directional confrontation. And no, I don't mean that involved Harry Styles. These pop culture references are getting strained, man. Fair. In any (laughs) event, the Fourth Lateran Council, held in 1215, might be the most important moment in medieval history. Certainly the most important thing that happened in Europe that year. Even more than Magna Carta? Especially more than Magna Carta. (gasps) I know. It's just... (laughs) Magna Carta's an England thing. Lateran Four is a Christendom thing. Man, don't tell John. I know. Poor John. (laughs) Innocent III called the council because he saw a lot of problems facing the church. As you mentioned before, the Fourth Crusade didn't exactly go as planned. Mm -hmm. There was a great fear of heretics running around Europe. And like any good pope, Innocent III wanted to make significant reforms to the church. There are 71 canons, or resolutions, that came out of the council. And I'll go through all 71. We may not even be friends anymore if you do that. Loud and clear. So to me, there are three significant outcomes. Crusade, heresy, and reform. But it's really the first two that matter most. And cards on the table, as someone whose primary interest in history is the dynamic between heresy, wrong belief, and orthodoxy, right belief, it's the stuff on heresy that ends up being the most significant. I guess the reform stuff is too, but it includes stuff like banning clergy from wearing pointed shoes, gambling, and attending the theater. Pointed shoes I get, but a theater ban I do not. That is monstrous. They are monsters. I know, right? There are some other more serious ones in there too, particularly toward the end. The last few canons require that Jews and Muslims wear identifying clothing and that Jews who converted to Christianity be prevented from returning to Judaism. Given the violence against Jews during the Crusades, their expulsion from France, and their subsequent expulsions from England in 1291 and Spain in 1492, these canons are particularly haunting. So is that part of the heresy stuff that you were talking about? Not quite. Though those canons are certainly about wrong belief, Jews and Muslims wouldn't be considered heretics. Heretics are Christians who believe the wrong things about Christianity. And on this, Lateran Four has a lot to say. The first five canons, in fact, have everything to do with enforcing correct Christian belief. 
And can you please tell our listeners what does correct Christian belief mean in this case? Well, a lot of things. But in this case, there was a lot of focus put on the Eucharist, communion. Well, by a lot, I, I just mean the first canon or resolution. There's also a condemnation of Joachim of Fiore, an apocalyptic prophet who caused a lot of trouble. He needs a whole episode one day. Even Christopher Columbus cites Joachim of Fiore, interestingly enough. Plus, like any good Latin church proceeding, there's a bit of the condemnation of the Greeks and a call for them to reunite with the Latin church and an assertion of papal primacy. That is, the Pope has ultimate authority over all Christianity. But the real kicker, as far as I'm concerned, is the third canon on heretics. Ooh. It's juicy AF, as the youths say. That's not what that means, I think. You're probably right. Anyway, the third canon lays out precisely what's to be done with heretics. And it's pretty much what you'd think it would be about. Condemn, condemn, condemn. Anyone condemned of being a heretic would face not just ecclesiastical punishment, but temporal, secular punishment as well. The Pope commanded that if a person was a cleric, they have to be tossed out of the church. If the heretic was a member of the laity, just kind of everyday people, that person would lose their property, and once sold, the proceeds from the sale of that property would go directly to the church. Harsh. For sure, but it actually gets even more intense. Temporal secular leaders must also make sure that they're working to suppress any heresy in their jurisdictions. They were, and I quote, admonished and induced, and if necessary, by ecclesiastic censure, that as they wish to be esteemed and numbered among the faithful, so for the defense of the faith they ought publicly to take an oath that they will strive in good faith and to the best of their ability to exterminate in the territories subject to their jurisdiction all heretics pointed out by the church, so that whenever anyone shall have assumed authority, whether spiritual or temporal, let him be bound to confirm this decree by oath. In other words, make sure your people are in line or else. And the council gave the Pope the authority to absolve the bonds between vassals and their lords if the lords didn't fall into line, and even to give that lord's property to good Catholics who would obey the church's command. Judges would have their decisions vacated if they proved to be a heretic. Any will drafted by a heretical lawyer would become invalid. Any cleric would be removed from the church. And this is also kind of how excommunication becomes a social death. If you were proclaimed to be a heretic, nobody could talk to you. And if they did, they too ran the risk of excommunication and eventual designation as a heretic. Diocesan priests were even required to keep notes on the people they served and make reports to their higher-ups if something was amiss. Sounds like some dictator stuff. It kind of does. And I think this is why scholars like Morris insisted on this concept of the papal monarchy. But written rules are one thing, enforcement is another. It's all well and good if the Pope says that he can do these things, but what the historical record bears out is that a lot of secular rulers bucked this authority. Maybe records of these mini inquisitions existed once upon a time, but if they still do, as far as I know, nobody's really written about it. 
So maybe Innocent III, who wrote these canons by most accounts, thought of himself as a monarch of sorts. But was he really? Jury's out. So if that's Lateran Four, where are we going to get the Crusades now? Oh, yeah. I was saving it for after Lateran Four to really hammer home the importance of identifying and eliminating heresy. But the crusade we're about to discuss ever so briefly started a few years before Lateran Four. This is the Albigensian Crusade. The Albi, what's that now? Crusade? Okay, but in truth, Albigensian is one of my favorite historical words. And the interest that I had in it originally was because I was like, that's a cool name. What's that about? Well, if you've never heard the name before, you might recognize the name the Cathars. Yes, I totally do. Albigensian was another name for this religious group that we've come to call the Cathars because this first group seems to have popped up in the area of Albi in France. The Cathars are an interesting group. Honestly, other than the Templars, no group of medieval people have generated more conspiracy theories than the Cathars. They're even mentioned in Dan Brown's novel, The Da Vinci Code. Of course they are. And as a side note, that is one of my mom's favorite movies. If she listens to this, hi, mom. I know. It's Dan Brown, and I'm afraid so. But still, Da Vinci Code. Though, if you don't take it seriously, I do think the novel is a lot of fun. It is. In any event, let's streamline this significantly. The Cathars were, by all reports, a dualist sect. That means that they don't, like, face off in sword fights. What it means is that they believe in a good god and an evil god. They didn't have any love for Latin sacraments. They were preaching without authorization. They were converting people to their religion and their church. And I can see why the church didn't like them. Yeah, so we're not 100% sure if they actually existed. A lot of recent scholarship has really brought what we think we know about the Cathars into question. And the argument is that the church had this preconceived notion about what the Cathars were and what they believed. These assumptions carried into the questions inquisitors asked of people and people said whatever the Inquisitors wanted to hear to get the Inquisition over with. And since Inquisition records are our best evidence for Cathars on the ground, so to speak, what we think we know isn't exactly trustworthy. There was even a recently defended dissertation that argued that Inquisitors in one region of France between 1245 and 1246 specifically targeted the wealthy. I'm not sure that I buy these arguments 100%, but I do see their merit. You're in the weeds. You're supposed to be talking about a crusade. Sorry. Okay, so in southern France, the Count of Toulouse, Raymond VI, refused Innocent III's command to root out these suspected Cathars. Innocent excommunicated him and interdicted his lands. You can kind of see this connection to what's happened here so far and the canons of Lateran IV. At least I hope so. Well then, in 1208, a papal legate was murdered in Raymond's neck of the woods, and Papa Sent, I, I mean Innocent III, had enough. He had already tried to get Philip II of France to lead a crusade against the Count, but France and England were at war, as per usual, and couldn't answer Innocent's call. But now that the legate had been murdered, Innocent offered the crusading indulgence to anyone who would help him root out the heretics in Europe. 
Wait, wait, was Simon de Montfort in this? Simon de Montfort was in here somewhere. You know, he's got a lot of crusading experience. It's smart to use him. Well, the crusade went on for 20 years and ended with widespread destruction in southern France. It was so traumatic that later Inquisition opponents actually marked time before the arrival of the Crusaders and after. One scholar has even gone as far as to call it the first genocide in European history, but few agree with that designation. Nothing ever does, does it? Yeah, and that's a super boiled down version. I'd really encourage our listeners to follow up with some of the sources we've listed to get a clearer picture of the story. Plus, if you go and you read the last canon of Lateran IV, Innocent III sets an actual date for the start of the Fifth Crusade. It doesn't really work out that way. <laughs> anyway, Josh has one more story. Go. Sure thing. So I first traveled to Rome all the way back in 2010. And honestly, it was a dream come true. I'd been reading a lot about Innocent III as I was finishing up my MA, which happened to be on the Cathars, and I knew he was buried in Rome, specifically at St. John Lateran, the old seat of papal power. And hot take might be more impressive than St. Peter's Basilica. But I misunderstood. Innocent III is interred at the Lateran. His sarcophagus is actually in one of the walls. In fact, it sits right above a doorway. And when I visited in 2010, that doorway led right to the Lateran's gift shop. So there he was, the most powerful pope in the Middle Ages, perhaps, maybe in all of history, guarding the gift shop. The gift shop had moved when I went back in 2015, but that hasn't stopped me from calling Innocent III the gift shop pope. Affectionately, of course. I'm not entirely sure that we can ever top a conversation about how the mighty Pope Innocent III became a gift shop Pope. So to wrap things up, I'm just going to give you one last fun fact. Or footnote. Oh yes, a footnote for sure. This fabulous footnote is that Innocent III is currently someone you can see, in air quotes, if you ever visit the U.S. Capitol building. In the late 1940s, the House Chamber, also known as the home of the House of Representatives, got remodeled. When all was said and done, one of the major decoration decisions was the inclusion of 23 marble portraits of figures from history in profile. The figures who got chosen for depiction all had ties to the law, and according to the Architect of the Capitol's official website, they were people whose actions helped establish, quote, the principles that underlie American law. Innocent III is up there, alongside people like Napoleon, Justinian, and Simon de Montfort, not the Albigensian slash Fourth Crusade one, but his son. I mentioned Simon specifically because, well, I love him. And back in our early days, I did an episode specifically about what Simon did to earn such a plaque. As for Innocent III, his official entry lists him as a medieval pope who was a, quote, student of canon and civil law, who, like Gregory IX, preserved the remnants of Roman law during the Dark Ages. It actually says Dark Ages? Bruh. It does. Folks, we don't say Dark Ages on this podcast because we know, and you know, the Middle Ages were not dark at all. They were awesome and interesting. But anyway, I wanted to close with that because, hey, 
Maybe one day we will have episodes on everyone who has a plaque there. It could be quite a challenge. Let me know how that goes for you. You know I will, and I'll let you listeners know too. Thank you so much for joining us for the first ever Josh Christine collaboration. We had a great time. We hope you did too. But wait, can I do my, so what do we do with this thing? You absolutely can, I guess so. So what do we do with Innocent the Third? Well, I think a couple of things. For one, we can really interrogate that concept of papal monarchy. Innocent III certainly saw himself as the ultimate spiritual authority in Latin Christendom, and maybe he was. Or perhaps he was more vision than accomplishment. He certainly set a high standard for future popes, and it's really no surprise that scholars have gravitated towards him as a symbol for the power of the medieval papacy. But I think we'd be wise to look at Innocent III as an example of the limits of the papacy as well, even on things of a spiritual nature. For all the control he attempted to grab in Lateran IV, we see it slip through his fingers. Even his crusading slips through his fingers. I'm not entirely sure I buy that Innocent III was the apex of papal authority in the Middle Ages at this point. If he was, perhaps he was also the beginning of its decline as well. But my goodness is he interesting. I could spend years reading stuff on him, in addition to all that I read back in graduate school too. I totally get it. You know? But hey, thank you for doing this episode with me. Wouldn't miss it for the world. It's been a long time coming, and I hope we can do it again sometime. Me too. Everybody who's listening, thank you for being with us. Don't forget that you can find our sources for this episode on footnotinghistory.com. Make sure you listen to our next episode when it drops. It'll be the last one until 2024, and it's our annual History for the Holidays fun. And of course, always remember, the best stories are in the footnotes.